Hey, everybody. This is Chuck from Strong Towns. Uh, just wanted to do a quick reminder because uh, I'll probably be doing this every week now until we uh, get to October. October 1st, the big book comes out. Strong Towns, a bottom-up revolution to rebuild American prosperity. I got to tell you, I just got the copy edits uh, back in. I was freaked out about this phase. I'm like, they're going to rewrite my book so it doesn't sound like me. No, they didn't. They were gentle. And the copy edits turned out well. And I love the way this book reads. I'm excited to share it with you. Go get your copy today. You can get it anywhere that books are sold. You can get it at your bookstore. You can get it online. The earlier we get uh, momentum, and trust me, we're getting some good momentum on this book, the better this is going to work out for uh, this entire conversation. So if you want to support us, go get that book and help us get up there in the list so people can start uh, learning about Strong Towns and, and getting our message. This is a fun podcast with John. I, I hope you enjoy it. Talk to you all soon. You're listening to the Strong Towns Podcast. Everybody, this is Chuck Marone. Welcome back to the Strong Towns Podcast. It's a beautiful summer day here in Minnesota, and I've got on the line with me from the Cincinnati, Ohio area, John Young. He is a urban planner, really a story developer. He works with communities on redevelopment to make sure that their unique story kind of comes through and uh, the unique qualities of those places shine. I've known John for quite a long time. I was on his podcast years ago. And I'm happy to have him on here. John, welcome to the Strong Downs Podcast. Hi, Chuck. Thank you for having me on. Yeah, it's wonderful to chat with you. Talk a little bit about Urban Fast Forward and uh, the work that, that you all do. Urban Fast Forward is a commercial real estate and urban planning consulting firm that's really driven uh, on developing community visions based on commercial real estate, branding, and identifying some of the assets and characteristics of communities and helping to move them forward. We focus on place-based strategies, tactical urbanism, uh, zoning, kind of a full gamut. But we also do this kind of storytelling aspect where we work really hard to identify what the great assets of the communities are and then expound on that and help the communities promote and market themselves that way. I've been fascinated with you in general. I, I, I told you this before when I, there's a group in Cincinnati and, and you're a part of that, that have fascinated me for a while. Cause you're, I just turned 46. I feel like you're a step younger than me, not a full generation younger than me, but a step younger than me. You've got your feet in this, what I would just call like the hip trendy kind of thing that, that wasn't available for me when I started out. Um, these options like weren't, part of the marketplace of, of people doing things. I, I feel like you are engaged in some of the most unique work in the country. And uh, I want to have you on and, and chat about that. So thank you. Thank you very much for having me. I'm, I'm, I'm happy to be on this, uh, on with you. It's been five years, Chuck. It's been five years since the last time uh, we, we spoke on the podcast. And a lot of great things have happened in Cincinnati. A lot of not so great things, but you know, well, I think we'll be able to kind of cover all of that stuff. <laughs> So let's start with Colerain Township. Here in Minnesota, we have a city called Colerain that's spelled the exact same as yours. In the (laughs) local vernacular, do you say Colerain or is it Colerain or how would you, how do you guys say that? It's Colerain. Okay. So I'm good. Um, Yeah. So you're good on that. 
And like all places that are named the same, there is a special door in some area of Coleraine Township that leads to Coleraine, Minnesota. <laughs> so just, you know, be, be look out for that. If I had to think Coleraine, Minnesota is probably like 200 people. So you could fit it. You could fit the essence of it in a block. <laughs> Describe Coleraine Township a little bit, because this is kind of in a sense, like the quintessential, I'll use my word. It's like in a military sense, it's kind of like the quintessential FUBAR place that grew spread up after the sixties, but, but I want to dig deeper into it. So you, you describe it. Okay. Um, and you're probably referring to like Johnny San Filippo's article <laughs> on strong towns a couple years ago, where he did this kind of photo essay. Yeah. Uh, you know, this is, this is a community that, you know, it's a township, so it's not incorporated. Uh, it evolved around the Coleraine Avenue corridor, which goes all the way into, uh, close to downtown Cincinnati. And after world war two, you know, of course, suburban expansion, uh, blew up and this, this whole area that we're working in right now literally just appeared over the course of like 10 years in the 1960s. Like you look on historic aerial images, the only thing that was like in this Northbrook area of Coleraine was an airfield. And 10 years later, it's like fully built out. So, you know, as what's happened with a lot of these communities now is that the wealth has, has moved on further outside of the city in the region, and then also, you know, within the last 10, 15 years, moving back into the core. So we have this little, this ring of basically first generation post-World War II suburban communities that were built, like, similar to, like, a Levittown almost overnight. And they're starting to lose value, and they're starting to uh, change demographically. And what are some of the consequences of that, and how are some, some ways that we could figure out how we can turn these places into better places. Well, Johnny's article, going back and rereading that was, yeah, I remember this. <laughs> like for me, it feels a lot like the edge of, of our town, which was developed around the same time. You had an iteration of basically low value kind of strip malls, the strip development. I was chatting with someone last night about the drive-in. We had one of those drive-in restaurants where the the high school girls would come out with their roller skates on and like, you know, you could order right from your car and then you'd park there and eat in your car as if that was some luxury good <laughs> at the time. It kind of seems like that's what this strip was. And now it's in a partial decline, but also partial like rebirth along a new, maybe not so great model as well in some places. So it's really fascinating. If you look at the, the Coleraine Avenue stretch, itself there's a mix of these old school like you'll see like the old school arby's with the crazy big hat neon sign and then uh and then you'll you'll see like a brand new like raising canes fast food restaurant and there is a, a mall there it's called northgate mall and it's one of like i think six five or six malls in the cincinnati area but it's one of the malls that's kind of declining they put they did this huge uh renovation of it about five years ago and it it just looks like it didn't really work out that well. So they've got like a movie theater in there. There are not a lot of uh, stores that are open during the day. It's pretty empty. It's functional. Like there's still some anchors there, but it's kind of just treading water at this point. Here's the other weird thing. I think, if you, I think maybe Johnny had a, had a photo of this. Like there's a, a, a elevated bridge. There's a bridge over Coleraine Avenue, a pedestrian bridge. That's how dangerous this street is. <laughs> like we've got to put a bridge over it. I'm looking at that mall. Built in 1970, that was the airport site, is my understanding. And you've had this succession of like, okay, it was like the place to be for a while, and then went through a default. 
it had like openings and closings online. It's saying you're going to lose the Sears here soon. Is that gone? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's, 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 it's headed out Macy's, you know, may or may not. These are the stores that are just like with the you know retail compaction that's happening across the industry right now in the United States of America. Like these are the, the sites where they might not have their record stores in the next two years or three years even. And what do you do when you're this, you know, you're a property owner, you've acquired this mall. I think they acquired this mall five or six years ago, sink all this money into it. And now they're not going to get the return on that investment. And the thing is like, if you zoom out of Coleraine for a second, there are two other malls, literally two highway exits to the east of Northgate mall. There's, there's Tri-County mall, uh, which is off of Springdale. They had a major refit a couple years ago as well. And then there's, Forest Fair Village, which used to be called Forest Fair Mall, Cincinnati Mill, Cincinnati Mall. <laughs> it's gone through a litany of different name changes. And this is like a strip of very marginal and dead malls. Cincinnati, Forest Fair Village is basically almost dead. Like uh, my friend Ryan Slerno, who runs a blog, Queen City Disco, you should check it out. He does photography just to post on returning to Forest Fair Village and just how vacant and empty it is. And what's fascinating is that if you look across the country, you talk to the sprawl retrofit people, they, they'll give you examples of all of these malls that have been purchased by developers and then torn down and turned into urbanist mixed-use developments or turned inside out and all sorts of stuff. And it's just not happening in Cincinnati at all. I think there's an opportunity to do that, but the, the desire and demand isn't there yet. I want to talk a little bit about the, the people living there. Johnny in his article and some of the other stuff that I've seen focus on just the mismatch between the poverty there and basically like the ante to live in this place. You've got a lot of people who are walking. It's not real well. It's not real well designed for people walking. You have a lot of people who are kind of struggling to get ahead and the properties aren't appreciating. Once we get off this very kind of sign dominated 1960s commercial strip. What are you getting into in the neighborhoods that surround this? So Northbrook is the neighborhood that's immediately to the east of all of this suburban drive-throughs. And so you go to, you turn off of Springdale Road, you turn off Compton Road on Coleraine, and suddenly you have 1960s era slab foundation housing. Uh, it's roughly about 900 to 1,000 square foot per house. They were all mass produced in the 1960s, and the population there is is mostly white. the The median income is you know in the 40,000 range. These are people that are very passionate about their community. There's actually uh, we're working with a group called a Greater Northbrook, and this community group kind of rose up after seeing a lot of crime and some and some other and speeding and a lot of just neighborhood quality issues affecting the communities. They said it rose up and talked to Coring Township and started to actually take action on in making their uh, community a better place. Uh, one of the things that they've, they've been doing is they've, they're working on a street calming effort with the township. The township basically bought these uh, makeshift chicanes for a, only a couple hundred dollars and put them down to the test on a street in Northbrook. It worked. It calmed traffic down. And they have the data to prove it. So they did this kind of like very tactical thing from the get-go to kind of prove the point that you can slow down traffic in this community. And one of the weird data points in this, this experiment is that there was actually more traffic 
on the chicane route than before. And mostly that was because people wanted to check it out. <laughs> so sure. like people Curiosity. were driving, yeah. <laughs> they were just driving through it. <laughs> it's like their, their traffic counts are way high. Um, but now they're working on trying to do, uh, get funding to make it a permanent installation and then also move it to other areas of the community. So one thing that also about Northbrook is that if you look at it on a map, right in the smack dab in the middle is an old shopping plaza with a couple of like auto oriented, like there's a repair shop and a bar uh, developments right in the core. So in a way you, you look at this kind of community and even though it's a suburban sprawl, sixties pattern development, there was some semblance of like, let's try to create a community center here. So there was a commercial center in the middle. There are these, we we've driven around this community a bunch of times and walked the streets there are these weird hidden walkways that connect places. We talked to the community. They're talking about, you know, we want to go back. We, we miss the community pool. We miss being able to see our neighbors and, and hanging out at the pool. Well, I was like, all right, what, what pool? So we went and looked, looked for the pool. And the pool is now a, uh, a Buddhist uh, center. <laughs> yeah. So, so I went driving around the Buddhist center and I found like where the pool used to be. It's now a garden. But then you look around and there are all these little sidewalks that connect into that property. So there was, you know, there's a desire in Northbrook to be connected. And that stems from the fact that they used to be more connected than they are now. This is the one thing that I've found. And I think you see this the further east you go. You know, so Cincinnati area would would ha- would definitely have some of this, and you can you can see it in the in the overhead maps and and everything else. That immediate development after World War II, that 1950s and 60s pattern, they still hadn't figured out how to do the total isolating, manufactured, everybody gets a cul-de-sac kind of development. So you still do have some interconnectivity. You still do have some neighborhoods. You have some semblance of blocks. And my guess is you would have had a little bit of mixed use even in these neighborhoods when they were first assembled. Is that, is that what you're getting into on the ground? So we're not seeing a whole lot of mixed or any mixed use at all on the ground level, but we are seeing like adjacent to commercial uses and in the, in the main core area. One of the things that we, the township noticed, we noticed as well is that there are no sidewalks outside of these subdivisions. So there are sidewalks inside of them. But on the main roads, uh, there's no connections, no pedestrian crossings. So the township is actually built about a mile, like I think it's like 27 miles of sidewalk along one of the main roads to connect about two or three of the subdivisions to the uh, to the center, commercial center of this this neighborhood. So there are still some old farmhouses there. There's a, a, a nursery that I think utilizes an old farmhouse. So there's opportunities to kind of create a sense of place there. You know, what a lot of work we've done in the past has worked with small towns and and city neighborhoods that have had that pre-World War II urban core. Northbrook is really one of the first places that we've we've gone into that hasn't had a history besides the fact that it was an airfield. So our position on this is what is the future directory of a Northbrook? What's their new future that they can embrace? And so we've been looking into how can we make those connections and, and do those activations? Well, let me ask you this as a starting point to explore that. I was on the group's Facebook page, the Greater Northbrook Group. That's one of the groups you're working with there, right? 
Yes, yes. Here's a theory that I have. I want to get your sense of this, and then I want you to to talk a little bit about this group and some of the work that they've done. Okay. I, I feel like these places can be saved. Like, I don't think they're beyond redemption, right? Certainly very difficult to work in and not like a natural landscape for retrofitting and redeveloping and, and making it financially viable and all, all the things that places like this struggle with. But when I'm in that Northbrook group, I mean, here's a place that has had like eight Facebook posts today um, from different people. They're not the typical Facebook like argue. This is actually, if you said like, what would Facebook do in an ideal world? It would connect neighbors to talk about neighborhood issues. And that's a lot what I see happening here. Like, hey, uh, there's a little cleanup thing happening over here. Or, hey, uh, you know, what's going on with uh, over at the library? Or, you know, hey, we've got this thing coming up this weekend. Just want everybody to know, you know, this is a softball tournament over here. To me, not having been there the way you have, obviously, this feels like a place that has some community, despite the kind of pattern that would not really promote community. How important is that? And I guess this is my theory that you kind of have to have that. How important is that to what you see as the future success of a place like this? I think it's everything because, you know, you work, we'd be working with consultants, we'll come in, we'll do some community engagement, we'll do a plan, we might do a bit of implementation with the community, and then we kind of leave and go to the next town. It really is up to the community stakeholders and the, uh, the cities and governments to, to move those plans forward. But Greater Northbrook, I remember we did a community uh, engagement with them. They're like, well, you know what, we want to know what our assets are. And all this other stuff, and, and Kathleen and I just sat at the table, generally like, "You guys are the asset. You are the biggest asset to this community. They're the ones that come, that set these meetings up, that are promoting these these events, that are they do a bigger session like every other month at the community center. They're the ones that are, are knitting those uh, the threads of community together. We see ourselves as just there to support and help guide them in in moving towards their future. But they're really." Are those, you know, the people that are part of a Great Northbrook, the, the, the whole organization, is the momentum. And these people are, are passionate, hardworking residents of Northbrook and surrounding areas of Northbrook as well. And they're, they're, they're dedicated and determined. I've, it's a very rare sign to see community members that engaged and that passionate. And these guys, they work really hard. So we love them. What's the interaction between them and the... The official city processes. I mean, the, the 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 official staff and the elected officials. And what's the interaction like between those two groups? They have a pretty good interaction with the township administration. Oh yeah, it's all township. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry. Yep. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> if I if I uh, err into county, just like just say no. no we have uh, we no totally. We we have townships here too, and they're they're fascinating. They're fascinating governmental entities. There's no doubt about it. Well, you know, a, ta- a township has restrictions on, on what types of taxes it can levy. They're really not collecting a whole lot of tax. I think they have a joint economic development uh, zones along Corrine Avenue with other municipalities and stuff like that. Uh, and then, of course, like, you know, just as inf- on an infrastructure basis, like water and sewers, regional uh, Cincinnati waterworks and metropolitan sewer districts. So their their involvement in that is not, you know, completely with the county or with within a, any entity that governs Northbrook. So. That's a bit of fascinating back end on the on the math section of of this township. As far as what they work with, they've got a good rec- rapport with the administration. 
I would say uh, politically, it's a bit interesting. A lot of the township trustees are from the west part of Coleraine Avenue and not the east part. So, I mean, if you look at Coleraine Township on a map, you know, the less dense but more wealthy part of the township is west of Coleraine Avenue. And the older, more dense part of the township is on the east. Yet, most representation is on the west. So, if you know, this is one of the situations where a Greater Northbrook and other organizations on the east side can become more active and more engaged as a community, they may be able to get some more leverage on the political side of things. That's an interesting dynamic. Does it tend to drive a, I'm going to impose my narrative a little bit on this and you react to it. A lot of the struggles that we have, like here in my town, is some of the representatives are from those more affluent parts of town, which are not the core neighborhoods. They're from out on the edge uh, they're from places that don't look like a city. And when things come up to a vote, like we're going to tear down these three houses and put in a big parking lot in the middle of this neighborhood. And the neighbors all show up and go, no, don't do that. The representatives from out on the edge, you know, that's where that's where they live. They have nice houses there with three car garages and cul-de-sacs and all that. They say, well, what's wrong with this? It's progress. You know, we need this investment. This neighborhood's in decline. Is there any of that tension where you have a tension between essentially decision makers and their values and people on the ground and, and their values and priorities? There's a little bit of that, you know, like there, there is, I think, a desire for some, some of them to put the development or the investments in infrastructure on their side of Coleraine Avenue, on the west side of Coleraine Avenue. But, you know, the thing is, like, I think that there's a an understanding that's being developed that like when you look at the news articles, like you pull up, you pull up Northbrook uh, and look at the news and you see any, any crime or any of the, the Sears leaving, for example, that's all Coleraine township. So I think there's recognition with the township uh, trustees and the administration that like, we need to make sure that the entire township is, is safe and secure and moving forward. And so they've been able to kind of make some arguments from that point in driving some, some change in Northbrook. I get the sense that you, like me, are a little bit skeptical about the capacity of, let's say, a suburban retrofit or a sprawl repair approach to come in and pour what would be millions of dollars of, you know, maybe hundreds of millions of dollars of capital into making this into a walkable urban, you know, utopia. If you are skeptical, you know, if you're not, let me know. If you are, what does happen then? Like, what what is the optimistic future of this place, and and how are you helping to make that come about? So, we actually did a, uh, a couple of comparison studies, and there's actually a neighborhood in Cincinnati, in the Cincinnati area, that looks a lot like Northbrook. Just happens to be in the city of Cincinnati, though, um, out on the east side. Same type of housing demographics. Difference is. Uh, higher housing values, there's more street trees, which um, is a very basic thing that we could just do like yesterday uh, for all our cities. It's, it's basically creating a, a, a place where there is more community and there is more housing value. Streets are safer and, and, uh, and it's a bit more walkable. It's, prepared, it's basically laying the groundwork for what I would think would be the next phase of organic incremental urban development. So we're creating sidewalk connections, we're adding streetlights, and all this stuff really is, it's on the cheap because A, we don't have a lot of money, 
and B, um, you know, like there is no big pocketed developers and come in and say, I'm going to build this giant uh, mixed use thing here. It's just not going to happen. And the third thing is like, if you did have the developer coming in, doing, doing this clearing, it wouldn't be Northbrook, you know, it wouldn't be these community members actually like digging in their roots and in, in the community and saying like, this is what we stand for. And I think that's where the authenticity, authenticity argument kind of comes in, which I've been kind of, I've been toying around with a lot in the last couple of years is, and this is kind of stepping back to Northbrook just in general is like, if you look at urban development in cities and new urbanist development, some to, to most degrees, is that there is kind of like an endless replication now. And people in the in, in the sphere have complained about the aesthetics, the infill, the base plus four kind of construction standards, but also retail. Like you walk around in New York City or Chicago, and it's just an endless replication of chains. And we're we were we're missing the neighborhood pub. We're missing the uh the local owned coffee shop or missing some of the like this is an identifier of what what my community stands for and what it is and i i call it like the indicator of neighborhood authenticity it's like the place that you go to that's been there forever and if it wouldn't be that community it wouldn't be that community if that place was gone and northbrook has opportunities to create either new versions of that or to sustain some of the things that are there right now if you have just generic urban infill coming in, it's not going to be, it, it could not be in the character of, of what Northbrook wants. So we're going to have to do things that are more incremental and more intentional in order to establish uh, a story for Northbrook to, to move forward. I want to talk a little bit about your work because it feels like there's two approaches that could be taken in a place like this. And approach number one would be, what I would say like is an old school model, which is let's start with the traffic engineers. Let's see what we can get in terms of grants where we can't get a grant. What can we do with debt? What can we do with tax subsidies? And let's try to get that mojo working again, where we get, you know, the next round of chain restaurants or the next round of redevelopment, maybe opportunity zones will help us and we can get someone to come in and start building condo apartments. There's like a, a model there and it's, I'm just going to call it top down for lack of like a better way to describe it. Th there's a different model and it emphasizes something different and it's almost like more intensive and personal. And I feel like that's your model that you're working with. Can you maybe describe and contrast it a little bit and why talk a little bit about your work and why you think that is the essential way we need to go about doing things here. So actually what's fascinating is that when it comes to Northbrook, we're taking a little bit of both approaches um, because one of the things that we're doing with our, our, uh, our engagement plan with them is there's a housing component that involves working with county organizations like the Port Authority and the Hamilton County Land Bank and, uh, and some other organizations to create a, uh, a housing organization called a CHODO for Northbrook. And that would help them purchase houses and, and develop kind of an, a, a marketable for sale standard for housing rehabs in Northbrook. And they would kind of be like a bit of a housing rehabber. So we're helping them develop that strategy and it's bringing in out these outside organizations to give them capacity, give them funding and partnerships. And then also that's, that's kind of the, the top down aspect of it. And then the other side of that is a placemaking strategy that focuses on doing some of these artistic, you know, artistic community led events and efforts 
Um, they have an opportunity with the township. They've purchased some uh, land that's just about a quarter, less than a quarter mile from the uh, the shopping plaza in the center of, of, of town there. Could they put in like a tire oriented uh, playground? Because they have a lot of, they've got a lot of car tires. <laughs> They're like, we got a lot of these car tires. I'm like, hey, I know a person, you know? <laughs> and then the other thing is like butterfly havens is, is something that came up as a potential, um, you know, tactical thing to do is, could we create uh, a butterfly haven paradise in Northbrook that would really tie into the natural and sustainable efforts of the community? And this is kind of like, this ties back to the more intimate, more, uh, I, I would say, intangible benefit uh, aspect of community development is like, Northbrook has a little bit of a story, but it has a future destiny. And that future destiny can be uh, doing something that allows it to create a name for itself, to be something different than any other community in the Cincinnati area. Like this is the place where the, North, where the butterflies are. This is the place uh, where you can you can go to a tire uh, a tire park, a tire playground, and uh, and so they're working on doing some of this stuff and building some of these connections. And there's opportunities um, to get funding for that. And so they're kind of looking at what you know what can we do on the cheap. And then how can we evolve that into a more finished product later on? So I think that's a bit of a mix, what we're working on. If there's a community out there that is of this era, the, the 1950s, 60s kind of vintage, and then has gone through the kind of evolutionary process since then, and you're going in, I mean, be it in, in Florida or Texas or, or, or you know Pacific Northwest or where, what advice would you give to John Young in another city wanting to uh, look at this place and say, I, I care about this place. I'm, I'm passionate about it. I, I want to help make a difference. What's your advice to them? Where would you start and what kind of things would you try to push on first? So, you know, my advice would be like, start small and make a lot of noise. Um, but, you know, also harness and develop allies early on. One of the things that makes Northbrook work is that you have, they have, uh, a county administration that wants to facilitate and help them create change. And uh, they're open to ideas that are unusual uh, and unconventional. Uh, a lot of other townships are not like that. Every community has its own sets of challenges, uh, and we need to kind of look in our toolboxes and see what can we do to kind of create those, uh, those incremental changes that will change the narrative and start spurring uh, growth and vibrancy and interest again. I want to push you a little bit on Cincinnati and the Cincinnati region. You can contradict this, but I, I feel like Cincinnati is one of these gems that nobody knows about. Uh, it's one of these, these places that when you go there and, and, and hang out and discover it, it, there's a lot of great stuff happening in Cincinnati, but it's not um, when Amazon HQ2 is going on. Indianapolis makes the list. and Everybody's shocked. Like, oh my gosh. And like, yeah, Indianapolis is a pretty great place. Cincinnati is not on the tip of people's tongues. Talk a little bit about why maybe that is. Why is Cincinnati this overlooked place? Give people a sense of what are the things that are pretty spectacular about it? Because I'm pretty fond of it. I've been there a few times now. Um, well, you were there a couple of, uh, couple weeks ago last just, month, just, right? Yeah, just yeah. last month I, I got a chance to go back again. In fact, I'm sitting here right now in the office. I've got my Cincinnati Reds uh, cup that I'm drinking out. Of. I'm drinking my Mountain Dew out of a Cincinnati Reds cup right now. 
nice. which is a little heretical for a Twins fan, but you're in the National League and <laughs> struggling this year. So, <laughs> so talk a little bit about Cincinnati. Cincinnati, um, you know, like a lot of people are like, oh, your best kept secret kind of nonsense. I mean, I, I, I hate that um, because I don't want to be, I don't want Cincinnati to be a secret. Um, you know, Randy from Urban Cincy uh, oftentimes says like Cincinnati is the first boom town west of the Alleghenies. And so we, we kind of struggle to kind of be competitive around our peer cities and, and describing exactly what it is that we're about. There's an uh, organization called uh, Source Cincinnati that has been around for about five years, and they've actually done a really good job of trying to get Cincinnati back into the headlines. If you Google Cincinnati and get some, some news hits, like you'll oftentimes see Cincinnati in one of the top like seven to ten uh, places to like have beer or visit or live in or, or whatever. So they've been working pretty hard to kind of tell the story. But I think one of the things that is the challenge is Cincinnati exists in a region where it's very close to a lot of other uh, similar um, cities, Columbus, Indianapolis, Cleveland, Louisville, Lexington, Pittsburgh, uh, Chicago, Detroit, just moving further on from there. And so it, it's easy to get overlooked. But one of the things that Cincinnati has that a lot of others of those those cities don't have is really wonderful architecture, a pretty strong art scene, a very a growing and robust restaurant scene. We've been moving pretty well in the right direction for the last five to six years uh, when it comes to that stuff, and we're starting to get noticed, which is a good thing. I, I think as an outsider, one of the things that uh, I think of when I think of Cincinnati, obviously, is is just the Ohio conversation, which I'm sure you're like me. I would like to do 2019 twice and skip 2020. Um, <laughs> you know, like if I, <laughs> I don't want to give up a year of my life, but if I could somehow skip 2020 and like repeat a different year so we didn't have to go through, and I'm in Minnesota, we don't get all the presidential craziness that you guys get. Um, oh, yeah. And I'm saying this as an outsider, it does feel like Cincinnati is in a sense finding itself or, you know, discovering its own greatness at a time when maybe the state politics or the statewide politics and certainly the federal politics is not uh, in agreement with that. Is there a tension there? And how is that uh, starting to starting to evolve or play itself out? As far as like national and, and state politics, um, Cincinnati has actually uh, been increasing. It's trending blue. Yeah, yeah. Um, and 2018 election was kind of another wave where we washed out a couple of Democrats, washed out a couple more Republican uh, judgeships and some other positions in that election year. Let me maybe rephrase it a little bit. It feels like there's a, let me just say like pro city, pro Cincinnati, like we can do this. Like let, let's make some investments here. Let's get things going. Let's be like very about Cincinnati. And then there's a very strong contingent <laughs> that says, you know, why are we investing in these like really bad places like Cincinnati? Why, why would we, uh, what's the big deal? Like, let's, you know, let's do what works, which isn't that. Am I wrong on that? Is, is that a, a, a debate you're having internally and, and what's going on? I think the, the closest debate to that that's happening at the state level is, is highway funding. We're doing a lot of, um, and I think I've shared some of this information with you. Like there's this whole effort to like do this Eastern bypass to build more roads out in, in the count in the, in the Eastern part of Ohio uh, so, like, what happened a couple years ago is uh, Governor Kasich, the former governor, decided to uh, take the toll revenue from the uh, Lake Erie Turnpike up north 
and then bond against it to build highway infrastructure improvements. And so they've been doing like uh, expansion of, high, of Highway 32 and into uh, Southeast Ohio and a lot of all these other. Which, roads. by the way, is essentially mm-hmm. the the government equivalent of hawking the family's China, right? <laughs> like basically, yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's like let's take this revenue stream we have and then borrow against it forever, so that revenue stream goes away, but we get all this nice stuff today. Yeah. So what's happened is DeWine, who just came into office, the first thing he did was put a bill forward to actually raise the state's gas tax because they discovered that they couldn't actually pay for it. All of this infrastructure. <laughs> sure. Oops. Yeah. <laughs> so now our gas tax has gone up because we want to build all these roads. So what's happened is, is, is it's less about like we hate the city. I, I think there is like a, a general like the cities are not getting money. There's this funding mechanism called a low government fund. And since 2010, when, when Kasich was in office, he's been gradually slashing the amount of money that comes into the state government's um, budget that goes back out to cities. And using that money to instead to plug budget deficits and pension deficits on the state level. So we're not getting any um, local government aid. There's been some optimism locally that DeWine would might reinstate some of that aid, which would be great for the Cincinnati budget since we're about $14 million in the hole this year. But there's just kind of this, this resolution, I guess, that like, you know, the state government isn't really going to be helping us for the most part. Jobs Ohio kind of helps do the, you know, play the economic incentive game and allowing companies from Kentucky to jump over to Ohio and some other things. But outside of that, like it's it's been kind of we get money for roads and uh, that's about it. <laughs> We're, we're all just kind of resigned. <laughs> it does feel like the money for roads though. And maybe that's what I'm picking up on more than anything. The money for roads really drives, <laughs> no pun intended, drives a certain facet of the conversation more than others. I mean, you, you guys, city observatory has done some really great job uh, talking about your toll bridges and some of the crazy stuff you've done with bridges there. It seems like the projects on the table or the big investments on the table all center around, you know, these transformative transportation kind of investments, which when you back up is, is essentially just like the next increment of what you've done that didn't really work. Am, am I misreading that? Because it, it does feel like a lot of your dysfunctional debate is around how you're spending highway money. Yeah, it's entirely it. You know, like I-75, they started seven years ago to expand it in one lane each direction. And they're quietly acquiring land to build that second Brent Spence bridge expansion uh, that Kentucky still hasn't um, decided to fund with tolls. There's the Eastern bypass conversation that's happening. And it's a lot of it's just like, you know, chasing, you know, good money after bad again. It's like, let's just double down this failed infrastructure model just because, and, you know, we've had a little bit of transit, funding increase from the state uh, this past budget year, but there really hasn't been any momentum outside of the local uh, efforts to really explore alternative transportation in in the state at all. You've seemed very aggressive on the road funding part, but the biking walking infrastructure, which in parts of Cincinnati is really great. I mean, there, there've been a lot of improvements, but my sense is that those, those have all been locally led and almost in spite of the emphasis in other places. Is that, is that the case? I mean, talk a little bit about biking, walking in, in the region. There has been a record number of pedestrians hit and killed in the last year in Cincinnati. 
I think we're over like 70 something now. And we have got a couple of advocates that are working to uh, develop, to push a vision zero safety plan through council. The thing is, is that, you know, five years ago, I t- we talked about the MLK interchange, 75 Frenchman's Bridge and the streetcar. And that was the same mayor that we have today. And this mayor up until recently has not really been a huge pedestrian bicycle safety advocate. But what he has done and to kind of address this is he's created a, a pedestrian task force for the downtown area of Cincinnati. Uh, but what's really weird is that most of the people being hit are in neighborhoods outside of downtown. So we need to figure out ways to just to, to put together better planning and better implementation for pedestrian safety in these neighborhoods. So on the local level, we've got a bit of a disconnect there. Uh, we haven't really increased any bicycle lanes in the last seven years. And as a matter of fact, we've just taken a bicycle lane out um, on, a, on a road because it's a bi- it's now a bypass for a, a road project that is uh, Columbia Parkway. I don't know if you're familiar with that stretch of road. Uh, there's a bunch of hills. There's a bunch of uh, hillside collapse happening there, landslides, and they're closing it down. And now they're diverting traffic. So we took a bike lane away there. Um, on transit, there's this really great community uh, organization. It's called Better Bus Coalition, and uh, they have been from the ground up advocating for uh, incremental change in the bus system. And one of the things they did is they built their own bus benches and then put them at bus stops around the city without getting any permission at all, <laughs> which infuriated the city and Metro. Uh, but it led, it led to the addition of over um, 200, I think, benches in, in the city. So the Metro basically said, we're going to put benches back out. But these small kinds of things is what we're doing, and they're all happening on a community scale. They're not, they're not being led by um, a council or by the mayor. They're being led by advocacy groups who are just tired of pedestrians getting hit. And, and tired of the bus and not being able to sit down at a bus stop. So uh, that's what we're seeing more of in Cincinnati is just like it's has, it's all coming from the ground up now. There is very little policy directives coming from the administration or any anyone on council or anyone on staff at the city level. Even that being the case, I still feel like things are really moving ahead in Cincinnati. Why do you have such a good urbanist conversation happening there? You know, I know the Urban Cincy conversation, long been a very good one, very mature. You guys have led like a really, a, a really good conversation there for quite a while. Why, why do you think there's this, what I would call like a hotbed of conversation going on there and then it resulting in this kind of ground level activism? What created that? It, was it people? Is it just serendipity? Is it the place? What about it do you think in your mind has, has brought this about? I think it's a combination of a couple of things. You know, Cincinnati is a great place. We have Over the Rhine, which is the largest intact collection of Italianate buildings in the in the United States of America. We have the streetcar, which really was a source of a of a huge, passionate, progressive groundswell twelve years ago when that when that conversation started in two thousand seven. It captured people's imagination about what Cincinnati could be, and it got a lot of people. Who, uh, who are friends and, and advocates today who, to get plugged in to the conversations in Cincinnati and to continue to defend and fight for some of these progressive urbanist uh, movements. Um, you know, this, the streetcar, for better or worse, is, it's, being, you know, it's not being run very well by the city right now, but it still is 
incentivizing and, and uh, encouraging economic development along the line. We're getting our first urban grocery store uh, right along the streetcar line. We're building a 13-story um, micro-unit apartment building with five parking spaces along the streetcar line. Uh, they're building a 264-unit apartment building along the line. So, And then a bunch of buildings along Finley Market, the northern part of the line, are being rehabilitated. So these conversations started 12 or 15 years ago, and they're starting to coalesce into actionable results. And I think that is what is continuing to push the urban progressive you know, conversation forward in Cincinnati. I want to ask you a little bit about the streetcar, just as like a, I don't want to end with this, but I, I kind of feel like, um, okay. Here's, I got beef, Chuck. I got beef. <laughs> that's good. I, I'm, I'm, I want to hear it. Okay. At strong towns, we, there's like four of us who will write social media posts and then they all go through one person, not me at the end who will edit them up and make sure they're good and send them out. Um, but it winds up being this kind of collection of things coming from different places. And in the last couple of weeks, we posted something about the streetcar and it wasn't very flattering because there's a lot about the streetcar project that kind of is anti strong towns. It's a little bit top down. It's a little bit build it and they will come. The finances of it are a little bit sketchy. Every time something about the streetcar comes up that is negative from us, we get a lot of passionate pushback from Cincinnati uh, folk who, uh, who are very passionate about it. So I wanted to give you an opportunity to, I'm not asking you to defend the streetcar uh, per se, but I am asking you to, to make the best case for it. Tell, tell me why, why I should ride the streetcar and, and smile and be like, this is part of uh, the bright future that I think Cincinnati has. Well, first off, on Reds game days now, you can now ride for free. Excellent. So when you were here, you could have written it. Um, <laughs> now I walked across the river on the on the great bridge that you've got there. That by oh, the way was yes. was closed off that day to traffic. I I thought that was just normal. I, I thought like uh-huh. this is gorgeous. Like there's no cars. Um, I found out later it was temporary. But uh, yeah, it's 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 a couple months, and people have been uh, taking photographs and enjoying the bridge. And oh. honestly, it probably works better than the pedestrian bridge. At this I think point. it does too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So back to the streetcar, we have an administration and a political leadership that has never been uh, supportive of the streetcar in place for the last six years, five or six years. And what has happened is a, con- is a concept called benign neglect, in which uh, instead of taking action that would improve the speed and reliability and functionality of the streetcar, our city's administration has instead just kind of look the other way or figure out ways to not actually do anything about it. For example, part of the contingency budget for the streetcar was to do a downtown traffic study. That study was supposed to take six to nine months. It took two years. The preliminary results from that traffic study uh, were presented about five or six months ago. They said, well, you can change a couple of these lights to be uh, streetcar priority and do some traffic retiming. And the city has laid all this fiber optic cable in the downtown street grid so they can actually manipulate the traffic lights in a way that's almost like real time. And none of those changes that were recommended from the, from the study were implemented to this day. The, the structure of the streetcar is, you know, the city constructed the streetcar. They hired the Cincinnati Metro uh, transit agency to run it. And then Cincinnati Metro, being a bus agency, hired a company called TransDev 
to run the streetcar. So there's a bit of a, a bit of Russian doll with uh, the arrangement of how it is operated. So the city has been trying to shift uh, operations to the city, uh, which is a bit peculiar because the city doesn't know how to operate a transit uh, system. So that's kind of been going on behind the scenes. At the end of the day, what, what we have is a $144 million project that was funded with about $25 million in federal funds, which means that we have to guarantee that this system runs for the next 40 years. But instead of making it better and embracing it, our city's administration has been doing everything it possibly can to use it as a poster child for why rail transit doesn't work in Cincinnati. Oh, it's, it's, it, gets, it gets stuck by parked cars. You know, the fine for uh, a park for parking in front of the streetcar tracks is $50. <laughs> yeah, that's a huge deterrent, huh? Not. So, um, you know, like you could literally just go around all day blocking the streetcar if you wanted to. These, these are the things that from an administration standpoint you could do. And so you look at a system like Kansas City, where you have an, a, a Mayor Sly James, who is a proponent of the system. They've made it free. They're using the same exact streetcars as we are. They're in their line is, just, is actually a little bit shorter than we are. They're doing an expansion. They have four times the ridership that we have. It's like, guys, there is something wrong here. And it's, it comes down to our ticket vending machines are too slow. It's stuck in traffic. And these are all things that are actually easy to fix. We're just not fixing them. And that's why we're suffering. And the thing that what's frustrating about this is somebody who's been a proponent of the system for a very long time is that, you know, we are, we, we, the route is great. It connects a lot of different attractions, the riverfront park, the red stadium, Finley market over the Rhine and everything in between. You know, I feel like it doesn't go far enough. I feel like if we want to actually make the system work, we should have built this to uptown as well. But we just, there's no chance to do that right now because we have an administration at the top that doesn't believe in rail. We have a state administration that doesn't believe in transit. And we have a political leadership in the city that doesn't believe in the streetcar. So I don't know what to do. <laughs> so you, you have this big investment. I, I kind of feel like what you've done is you've, you've made this, it's like a corporation makes a big investment in a strategy that they, they can't back away from now. And then the next like leadership comes in and they're like, yeah, you know, that was their deal. And if it just dies, we don't take any political hit for it dying. It, it's a like failure to thrive kind of thing. Um, they are. Yeah. They're, they're actually proving their narrative by, by under undermining the, uh, the, the investment. Someone actually uh, made the analogy the other day on a forum that I read. That's like, you built a brand new community pool at a, at a, in a neighborhood and you have all of these really great things around it, a rock climbing wall and a spray ground and new benches and all this other stuff. But you only fill the pool halfway. Like, that's what they've done. They've, they basically said like, well, we built this great, great new streetcar and the stations are wonderful and the, and the vehicles are, are modern and everything like that. But we're not going to operate it very well. We're just going to, you know, we're just going to ignore it. And then, the, they've, you know, you, you mentioned the, the funding stream mechanism. You know, the original funding mechanism for this was come from the tax incremental financing districts that are actually along the route to fund the operations. And then the, the political administration said, well, that's that we were going to use that money for something else, you know? Uh, so they wanted to do a special improvement district, but we can't do that because uh, downtown Cincinnati incorporated is a special improvement district in downtown Cincinnati. You can't have more than one in the state of Ohio in the same area. So we couldn't overlay that. 
So we came up with this, this really interesting funding mechanism called BTICA, which is a voluntary tax increment uh, tax. I'm blanking on the rest of the acronym, Chuck, I'm sorry. But what it means is that, <laughs> is that you know, your project, you, get a, you do a development project, you get a tax abatement for it, for like a 10-year or 15-year tax abatement. And then the developer voluntarily gives some of that tax abatement money back to fund the streetcar. And so, which is always a great way to run uh, essential government service is by voluntary contributions from corporations and developers. Yeah, no, totally. Exactly. Yeah. So we've had these, <laughs> we've had these developments happen, and some of them have been paying into it. And now we're, and we now we have two projects that have set the precedent that they can opt out. And uh, one of them is the Kroger that's actually along the line. The other one's Fourth and Race, and they're like, well, we, we're not going to pay for it because. You know, it's voluntary. And so, and the city has been like, okay, cool. And so we have deficits on the, you know, I think the Inquirer just uh, last week or two weeks ago said something about, you know, there's about a million dollar gap in the streetcar budget. And, oh, you know, the response is, oh, we're going to reduce service. Like, you know, as a, as a transit advocate, reducing service, reducing hours, those are the two of the biggest death knells for a system. So it's, it's just in a downward spiral. And nobody's, nobody is, wants to actually like, take any action to make it better. Um, there's been a lot of talk, but there hasn't been any action. And I would, I would like to see action on this. <laughs> it seems like at this point for the detractors, it, it's impossible to kill it. Um, and so that gives me some hope that at some point, if they get serious about it, like you say, a lot of the things that, that to do right are just like tightening up the ship a little bit. It's not like you got to invest millions of dollars to make this work well. Yeah, no, it's, it's pretty, pretty immediate investments and, um, you know, changing some traffic signals around putting up some more, uh, barriers, uh, to give it some more lane exclusions, fixing the vending machines or getting rid of them, making it free like Kansas city did, you know, simple, small things that actually, could make this a uh, profitable and worthwhile endeavor. You know, we as a city could actually embrace this thing that we're going to be with for 40 years instead of keep it at arm's length. It would be transformative for the city and the region, and it would really change the conversation. But we're just not having that right now. Right. John, I love chatting with you. <laughs> um, uh, Randy, uh, who's now living in, in South Korea, right? Still in South Korea. Still in South Korea. Still in South Korea. Um, one of these cool guys. The, the two of you and then some of the other people doing great work there. It's Cincinnati is like one of these places I could see myself moving to just because I, I, I love the attitude and I love the approach. And I, I just, I really admire the work you all are doing. If, if people want to get a hold of you, what's the best way? Well, um, you can follow me on Twitter at John Young Fats or, um, uh, which is, which is P H A T at the end. P H. Yeah. And it's Y U N G. So it's John H young of out and O and P H A T. And of course by email, John urban And, uh, I'm pretty responsive. So I'm, I'm, I'm happy to have more discussions about Cincinnati and what we're doing in, in, uh, in Northbrook. So John, it's yeah. delightful to talk to you. Let's keep in touch and, and not wait five years to chat like this again. Definitely. Uh, Am I going to see you at Louisville? Uh, This will come out after Louisville. Um, (laughs) And so, and, and, and so I think I can say uh, the answer. Um, No, I'm actually for a variety of reasons. And I'm kind of sad about this, not going to make it to CNU this year. This is my first one I will have missed since 
like 2008 or seven, something like that. So I, I feel bad about it, but uh, it's <laughs> my life does not lack travel. Let's put it that way. <laughs> so oh, um, it's fine. Yeah. 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 But next year we'll be in St. Paul. And uh, it'd be okay. it'd be it'd be almost impossible for me to miss that one. So, so stones throw from your unless exactly. you move to Cincinnati. Unless I move to Cincinnati, <laughs> in that case, then we'd have to carpool or something. <laughs> Definitely. Well, I'll talk to Travis now. Maybe I'll bring a little bit of a, a podcast uh, setup and Sweet. some interviews or something. Let's, so let's do that. That'd be we'll awesome. See. Thanks, cool. John. Well, I'll, I'll talk to you soon, Chuck, and. Uh, Keep on doing what you can do to make strong down. Gosh, right? you nailed it, man. <laughs> <laughs> take care, John. Cool, take care, Chuck. Yep, bye. Bye. Taking risk is a necessity to becoming rich. It's also a necessity to go bankrupt. Bill, 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 Bill. That's a story. They know that America's one big pothole right now. Just to echo what you said, there are no silver bullet solutions. Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating. Who made this city? The window is not always open, but if nobody's pushing, then once the window opens, there'll be no chance to go through. I like you. I like your vision of the, of the world. The United Nations Earth Summit. Agenda 21. Yeah.